Broadcasting from high above the reserve, this is Radio Harambe. Jambo, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Radio Harambe, the companion podcast to our website, jamboeveryone.com. I am Dave McBride, broadcasting to you from the Radio Harambe studios, and joining me from somewhere in the world, it's Safari Mike. Mike, where are you today? Dave, I am in the Lorenz National Park. Loret, like, uh, how do you spell it? L-O-R-E-N-T-Z, Lorenz. Okay, so that's got to be French of origin. I don't think it's in France. So I am going to go with a French-speaking colony, uh, like a French-speaking country, and um, I will go with um, uh, Côte d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast. (laughs) <laughs> no, Dave, I'm in Java. Oh, I wasn't All even close. No, My goodness. <laughs> We're studying the long beak echidna, which is a uh, marsupial. It lays eggs, one of the few mammals that actually lays eggs. They're found here in Java as well as Papua New Guinea. And they mm. are extraordinarily endangered. Um, it was not seen since 1961. It was thought to be extinct. But it was rediscovered in 2007. But they are critically endangered. I never would have thought of Indonesia, and that is a fascinating story. I, uh, I, I just uh, Indonesia never would have come to my mind. But yeah. uh, neither here nor there. People should worry more about what you're talking about and less about my horrible guesses at where these places actually are. (laughs) On today's show, Mike and I are going to discuss all the news from Disney's Animal Kingdom and the rest of Walt Disney World. And then in our final segment, we're actually going to have the second part of a conversation that we had with Josh Taylor from Modern Mouse Radio about the true life adventures. We're going to pick up sort of midway through that conversation and talk only about the features and then sort of wrap up the whole conversation. So if you want to listen to and have not yet listened to our last episode, that is the beginning of that conversation. We are going to finish it up tonight in our feature segment. But first, let's get on to the local news. Actually, before I even do that, um, I just wanted to uh, mention the Warden Wilson Air Rangers t-shirts again. Oh, Not only because it's a good time for a shameless plug at the beginning of a, of a show, but also because I was made aware today that apparently some of the links um, that we've had up to our Zazzle store, and actually the store itself, believe it or not, have not been behaving properly or had not been behaving very well over the last week or so. Um, so if you ha- were interested in these um, shirts, they're gorgeous. Um, 
100% of the profits we make goes towards um, conservation and our conservation partners. If you're interested in them, if you go, I, the link should be fixed now. Go to johnboyeveryone.com and you'll see on the top of the right sidebar on the front page a picture of the actual um, shirt themselves. And you click that picture and it'll take you right to the proper link. If you're having any other issues with them, email me at johnboeveryone at gmail. Dot com. Um, let's also let's now begin the news. Uh, first, we have this isn't really news because it happened already by the time you listen to this. But last week on Thursday was actually World Turtle Day at uh, uh-huh. Disney's Animal Kingdom, and this is one of those things we always talk about. And most of the stuff is for kids. Takes place at Rafiki's Planet Watch. Um, but Mike, what I like about this one is that it's actually like a joint celebration. It took place at the Animal Kingdom and at Epcot. Uh huh. So it's uh, it's one of those cool kind of, uh, you know, if, if you're going to both of those parks in one day, you'll get to see the turtle thing going on everywhere. Right. Uh, and obviously, it's at Epcot because of the living seas, et cetera, and they have turtles there, sea turtles in there, so... And Disney does have actually a, a, a pretty good track record with, the, with this particular cause, um, especially down in their um, Vero Beach location for Vacation Club. They do some... Some work down there as well with the local groups. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the next story is a very quick meet and greet change that you made me aware of. Uh, I guess Tarzan and uh, Pocahontas. I didn't even realize Pocahontas was still doing meet and greets, but apparently they are and have moved or are moving. Correct. Uh, they've actually moved. Well, they are moving beginning on May 24th. So Tarzan will be meeting guests um, near the Cottontop Tamarins um, at the Tree of Life. And Pocahontas will be shifting from that general vicinity over to uh, the Discovery Island Character Landing, which is right across from Flame Tree Barbecue. So if you are a character meet and greeter, that is the place to go. Mike, we kind of were were surprised by a bit of news this week, which doesn't happen a lot to us. Um, And Mm -hmm. that was the opening of a new pathway in Asia. Uh, yes. It opened last week. Uh, it leads from the entrance of Cali River Rapids, which <laughs> explains why they changed that entrance, which we had talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes, I guess, right, Mike, around the back of the Simon exhibit. Correct. Uh, and ends up on the path leading to Expedition Everest. Mm-hmm. Uh, do I have that all right? That sounds about right. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's just open. There's, there's nothing on the path other than... A path. In fact, there's sort of bamboo posts all around it, so you're just sort of herded into one thing. There's no, there's no uh, vending there or anything like that whatsoever. Uh, it's just a quick path, take you right over to the Cali River Rapids. And my only assumption is, and everybody else is assuming this as well, that it's built basically because there's going to be a bottleneck situation there when Rivers of Light opens. I would imagine that that's why, because that's going to be one of the prime spots to view it. That and over by the Finding Nemo area of Dinoland. And anybody who's walked around by Crystal Palace during Wishes <laughs> knows the potential for uh, you know for bottlenecks. I mean, that's not a big thoroughfare area, and some of those turns over there anyway. So to have a nice cutoff spot, you know, if you're not interested in seeing the show. Or, or really, if you're just looking to get around. I mean, when this show first opens... It's going to be huge. There's going to mm-hmm. be people everywhere, <laughs> you know, and we're talking about a park that was designed to not have big pathways. <laughs> so 
It's right. going to be kind of like the perfect storm of problems here, don't you think, when it comes to logistics for this stuff? Yeah, it's going to be difficult. I mean, there's more room over on the path by Dino Land leading to Asia and stuff like that, but that particular area can get kind of crowded even without Rivers of Light going. Yeah. Yep. So that's that just opened. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't even know they were building it. Did you know that was coming? No. I yeah, didn't. we didn't hear anything about it. But obviously, it's just I knew a- they were working on how are you going to enter Cali River Rapids, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, because we did see we did see the Cali change, um, mm-hmm. and we talked about that, and we didn't quite know what they were doing. I thought it was just because they wanted to use the uh, the they wanted to use the. Um, it had a sort of a nice entrance that they weren't really using, and mm-hmm. I thought maybe they were just getting more use of that, but obviously not. They were using it for one specific purpose, and that was to usher in the folks looking to uh, to move along to to their next destination. Finally, Mike, um, in the world news, well, it's finally for Park News. Um, this week we had a lot of news regarding Harambe Market. Um, first, at the beginning of the week. OrlandoParkNews.com, which is a site we often uh, reference here, reported that cast member previews of the new market were scheduled to take place this week. These are mm-hmm. usually, I, I call these the final dress rehearsals right. for any new thing, whether it be a restaurant or a ride or anything like that. And uh, so we knew, I knew at least from seeing that, that an opening date announcement was imminent. Uh, and obviously it was, because the next day we got it. Uh, first, we had this, um, how do you even, like this recipe post. Oh, yeah. And in that, with this recipe for chickpea salad, mm-hmm. they told us that it was opening on Saturday. Correct. I had initially heard the 22nd, but yeah, it's going to be uh, the 23rd now, right? Yep, and then we had today, or uh, the day we record here, which is uh, Wednesday. So we we got so by the time you listen to this, it will be open. Um, we got another bit of kind of news, but it wasn't really news. Just another post about Harambe Market. This one geared more towards the fact that it's opening in a couple mm-hmm. of days, and showed some pictures. There wasn't really much in the pictures. There was a video there as well. Um, they call it behind the scenes, but it's really just sort of interviews with a lot of company line sort of, um, you know, quotes from Imagineers and the chef, I think, as well. Uh, what are your thoughts on any of this stuff that's come around here in the last couple of days? Uh, well, I mean, they do so show some of the more of the buildings on the video, which I thought were I mean, it looks looks like it's going to be fabulous. And you definitely are able to see the train come by because they showed you clips of the train going by the new Harambe market. So right. they didn't really add to too much information. Um, I know they discussed a little bit about that. You know, the theming is, you know, each of these vendors that have their own little, you know, shop here for food. Each one is a little bit more successful than the others. And you could tell by the way the building looks and the, how fancy the menu is and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, some fun little nuggets, but nothing, nothing too Mike, the, the only thing that kind of stood out for me was one of the people being interviewed, and I believe it was the guy who was um, either a chef or the director of food and beverage or whatever it was, had mentioned um, the sort of backstory element to this, that it is a train station. Um, and uh-huh. he used that word train station. 
And I, I, mm-hmm. I can't help but wonder if somewhere down the road, the entrance to the way to get on the Wildlife Express train out to Rafiki's isn't going to move here somehow. Some way to get to a path to, a, some sense. to another platform. I mean, you would get, I would think you would get a lot more people wandering out there to the train with this. Mm-hmm. And you would get a lot more people Agreed. using the market because they're coming off the train. You know, you just Agreed. have more, uh, some other reason to walk through the market, some other kind of traffic to get through there. I, this phrase train station, it just, I mean, I haven't looked at a map of how this is all working out. Um, I think the train runs right on top of it. So could they easily build a platform somewhere near there and maybe take a take a little path into a clearing to build a new platform? I don't know. I don't know. But But that's... That's a word that I have heard a couple of times related to this, and it just makes a lot of sense to do it. But mm-hmm. I haven't heard anything about that, sense, right? I mean, you haven't heard anything like that. No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. They certainly haven't, they're certainly not constructing anything that would look like a train station, um, even down the road. Um, but it would make a lot of sense to put one right there. Yeah, I mean, there's you have the water tower that's usually associated with trains, but there's some other aspect of this, some either backstory or something in the construction that's making them use that phrase, that word, train station. And I'm I'm going to be real mm-hmm. interested to see what it is. We're going to have to send Scott Campbell in there on Saturday. Uh, I hope he doesn't have anything better to do. Um, he's going to have to go there and take pictures and, and report to us right away. Um, the other Did thing, you tell him this yet, or, or is this telling him? I, I just assume that he knows by now. Um, but I will tell him. Scott is the uh, is our intrepid reporter on the scene and also the host of the Dixie Landings Radio podcast. Um, the other thing I just wanted to mention real quickly, Mike, is that we didn't know. We, we saw this whole um, sort of shop section with the different robes and things being sold and purses and stuff. And it's obvious right, right, that right, right. that is now it's obvious from what we're seeing that that is just a display. That is not actually going. Which is what I figured. That's what we figured, but uh, we're kind of confirmed it now just because we've seen Imagineers playing around with the placement of the stuff and some mm-hmm. better, some wider shots of it. You know, there's no register there or anything like that. So Mm-mm. this is this is obviously that's obviously what it's going to be. Um, and it looks like from part of the video that it's up by where the train is. Yes, it's on that side. Yeah, and that may be the whole train station aspect. Of, I don't know. But we're going to find out in the next couple days. Um, I just yep. wanted to make one other mention of a story before we uh, go to a break. Um, and every once in a while, I like to make conservation um, show some conservation stories here. And there was one that really intrigued me um, just because of kind of what it says about the situation. Um, we talked a lot on the show about the critical need for serious action. Um, and, and I mean serious action against fighting the against the poaching of rhinos in Africa, not just rhinos, but elephants um, as well and all sorts of species. But two organizations, which I just read about this the other day, elephants, rhinos and people, which I think go by group dot com or something like that. And exotic and the Exotic Wildlife Association are now exploring the possibility and are even in the process of negotiating agreement with the South African government to transport around a thousand orphaned rhinos to ranches in South Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I mean, there's so many possible dangers in such a thing. I that, just. To, to clarify, the ranches in South uh, South Texas is chosen because of the climate is similar, uh, right. the the terrain is similar, and that kind of stuff. Um, 
Well, I'm not. I wouldn't know enough about this to say whether or not this is a practical plan. Um, I, I guess the reason why I'm saying it is because this is an incredibly ambitious, incredibly expensive um, alternative or, or, or you know, <laughs> right. solution to a problem to this to the saving of of the wild species, um, you know. <sighs> But I just fear we're now losing something like three rhinos a day yeah, in South I mean, Africa. Places the, that places that were once considered safe havens, national parks like Kruger, are now places where these things, where poaching takes place all the time. And I just, I guess, I fear that this may someday be the only answer. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly it. I mean, you're, you talk about what an an incredible in significant move this is and the first thing, thought that comes to my mind is desperate times call for desperate measures um as you said i mean it's it's worse than it has, has ever been poaching of rhinos and elephants um i know that article that you sent me i think it said kruger national park alone i thought it said lost somewhere over 300 rhinos to poaching in a month unbelievable um, and when you only have about five to ten thousand animals, I mean that's a significant amount, um, you know. And it's certainly a, and a, such a number that you can't really recover from uh, in any quick fashion. Rhinos take a long time to replenish their population. They, you know, pregnancy lasts over a year, and et cetera, et cetera. So right. it's it's a it's not an easy fix, and, and it's getting to the point now where they just can't control the poaching, and there may no be no other choice than to. Just get the rhinos the heck out of there. Yeah, and and to a place where um, there wouldn't be, <laughs> you know, in theory, in theory, yes, in theory, and that's the thing that a lot of people point out that you know we perhaps we would then be inviting a, a, an issue, a crime syndicate, so to speak, into the United States. Um, mm-hmm. But it's important to understand that for the people who do this. The amount of money that they make from killing and selling one rhino horn could feed them for years. Um, right. You know, and the, I mean, there's, th- these are people who make the equivalent of a couple of, you know, these are people th- th- in an area whose annual income is in the couple of thousand dollars a year. These are, th- you know, so you wouldn't have that same I- problem in the United States. And Correct. you could, Essentially, by putting them on private property and allowing the private property to arm themselves, you could keep a little bit better watch of them, I would think, in the U.S. than you could on a Mm -hmm. gigantic national park like that. Agreed. Now, Mike, one of the other things that I I read was that, um, you know, this would be a desperate thing because actually moving animals like this is in itself a terrific danger. Sure. To both the animals and the people. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's certainly not a stress free uh, thing for the animals. Um, And rhinos can be, I mean, rhinos, as we all know, are big. They can be dangerous. So, (laughs) uh, especially to the animals, though, it's it's very stressful. Um, Some animals don't, you know, don't do as well as others. And it's, I mean, it's, you're going to have to put them on a plane. I mean, yep. it's not going to be easy, and it's going to be a whole bunch of them. At a thousand. So I'm sh- yeah, I'm sure there's going to be some losses, and you know, 
in the for those animals in the trans in the transportation. The idea of transporting a thousand of them is just mind blowing. I mean, it really is. It's but, gonna be a big plane. But they think they can do it. <laughs> but they think they can do it. I mean, it might take years. Yeah, but could, but, yeah, but sure like will. but like you're saying, it's it's a situation where you know you're gonna at least have a population of gen- of genetic diversity to try to save the species in the wild in some capacity. You know, it may not be the ideal capacity, but it'll be in some capacity. Anyway, I just, if you want to do something, you know, there's not much we can do here, but other than donate, go to our, go to jomboeveryone.com, hit the conservation, you find Save the Rhino. Um, they do some work, um, lots of work in actually helping this uh, as best they can as well. Um, you can make a donation there. And, uh, and again, Everything that we make here, we donate as well to try to do our part. But that's really the best we can do is 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 donate our time or our money. Uh, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to have the world news with Safari Mike. I am exploring Mickey. And like most kids, I love zebras. And some of the coolest are the Grevy zebra. But if things don't change soon, there won't be any left in the wild. The Gravity Zebra Trust is doing everything they can to help keep them from extinction. But there are only a couple of thousand left, so we have to work fast. Go to their website, GravityZebraTrust.org, and donate anything you can. Even a small donation will help keep the Gravity Zebra alive for us kids and the future generations to enjoy. time now as always this time for the world news the <laughs> section that always gets me in some kind of trouble and with that is safari mike mike am i gonna get in trouble today i don't know dave because first we're <laughs> gonna go to the wilderness lodge and then we're gonna go to disney springs but first well those all sound dave, harmless we're, gonna, we're going to play america's favorite game oh right guess how much it costs i didn't know this okay great yeah uh, you're not supposed to tell me you are you you did it Okay, so what? Go for it, <laughs> Dave. Chef Mickey's is changing up their uh, offerings. As we all know, they do breakfast and they do dinner. Well, starting uh, in on May thirty first, actually. Oh, soon they're okay. going. Oh, yeah, soon they're going to start including brunch as an option, and that really? means a breakfast, which currently runs from seven a.m. till approximately I think eleven thirty a.m. Is now going to get extended all the way to 2.30 p.m., and they're going to add items such as soup and salads, seafood, barbecued ribs, um, baked salmon, a chicken dish, some antipasto. Um, really? All, yeah, they're adding it to their menu. I believe you're still going to be able to get the breakfast items because this will be, quote-unquote, brunch. You'll still be meeting, of course, the characters. Dave, guess how much the brunch costs so, will it? It's just the same. It, so it's they're gonna they're they're going to continue the breakfast hours into because they don't serve lunch now. They serve breakfast they do and not dinner. Serve lunch, correct? Breakfast. And so dinner. my assume. So so what you're saying is somewhere in the middle of breakfast or at the end of a breakfast time, some of the sure. breakfast items will be taken away and replaced with antipasta. 
and barbecued ribs and barbecued seafood ribs. dishes and they'll have an ice cream bar and some baked goods and stuff like that yes i don't know how much the dinner costs but i would imagine it would have to be something less than that uh includes everything i want to say i want to say ohana yeah uh, i'm trying to i'm trying to remember i'm trying to think back on ohana and how much that dinner costs and i want to say it was around 40 bucks so i'm going to say that Chef Mickey's is going to be more expensive for dinner than Ohana's because it's character and it's always more expensive on its character. So I'm going to guess 30, it's going to be a little less than that, $36. (laughs) Dave, you're so close. $37.99. Can I ask you a question? For for children, it's $19.99. What's the dinner cost? Forty six ninety nine. See, that's what I thought. I thought if Ohana is like around forty, this one must be forty five, and so that was my guess. Um, is there a difference between it and the breakfast? Nope, there is not. Oh well, there you go. That's that's surprising. Somewhat but, of a trick question, but yes, you can if you go with a, a and you know, Dave, it um, at the Tusker House, for example, if you get a very late breakfast, I mean, it's not like they force you out. I mean, you can still. When they switch over from breakfast to lunch, you can still be there and start getting the lunch items. I, Mike, I was just going to say, my wife's grandfather, uh, I can say this because he doesn't won't be listening, neither will she, um, he discovered the magic of the Las Vegas, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Las Vegas uh, 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 buffet scene and realized that if you go for, for breakfast and sit around for two hours, you can then have lunch, too, for the same price. So, so, but right. I, but I think at Disney they're not going to allow you to do that. They're going to, they're going to pick you up. And no, kick you but out. but if if at the Tusker House, if you get the last seating at breakfast, you'll certainly be there for when they switch it over. Right, right, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I'm, I'm surprised they're adding that. I guess basically all they're doing right here, Mike, is they have probably have a big. Um, you know, they, they, we, we know they always have a big demand for breakfast right. seating. So this is just sort of a, a way to extend the hours without killing the breakfast and without having to, you know, have any downtime in between the two. Mm-hmm. If that Correct. makes sense. So. Correct. There you go. I'm not a big fan of Chef Mickey's, but I know people are a big fan of it. So it's one of my least favorite characters, yeah. to be honest. I mean, it does have the big, uh, the big five. You'll get to see all. Uh, you'll get Mickey and Pluto and Minnie and Donald. But there's just too many people. There's, it, yeah, and the food is subpar, I think. I, absolutely. I don't think it's as good. Absolutely. There, there are much better buffets that offer characters. Tuskers, for example, has better characters. Um, Ohana does for its breakfast. Ohana does. But then again, but it doesn't have the big five. It, it doesn't have Mickey, the big five, right. Mickey, Pluto, Lilo, and Stitch. Um, even Tuskers doesn't have the big five. It right. has, I think it's missing Pluto, maybe? I, Hmm. I know Goofy's there. Most of the other ones only have four. Yeah, I think it's Pluto that's missing. Then you probably. I think it is. I think it is. And then you also meet Donald outside too. Right. But they also. I think they have Daisy in there too. But anyway. Um. Could be. I don't like, remember. Uh, the one at. Uh, I don't want to go too far, but the Beach Club. I can't think of the name off the top of my head. Cape May. Uh, Thank you, Cape May yep. Cafe. That has uh, a couple of them, and then also Chip and Dale, I believe, too. So right. You know, most of the other ones have different characters or a little bit of a different take on the, 
you know, some of the mainstays. It might have like Mickey and Minnie plus, you know, like Chip and Dale and Goofy or something like right. that. But Jeff Mickey's is the only one where you're going to get. I think that's the only one where you get the big five. Cool. Um, but the food, I don't, I don't really care for that much, no. to be honest. No. no, and I don't think anybody really does. But it's, that's not the point. Yeah. yeah, that's obviously not the point. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Dave, over at Disney Springs, it looks like the next thing we're going to start getting is the town center, which is some more of the the real estate area. Um, they've released some concept art for um, for it. It kind of looks like I don't know how to put this. It looks like a you know a late nineteen nineties business office <laughs> building to me. Um, you know, like okay. some fountains, some water stuff. Nothing really too exciting. Um, they also announced some new tenants that are coming our way, which includes uh, a Tommy Bahama store, cool. uh, Lily Pulitzer, uh, Pandora. There's going to be an UGG store. I know United World Soccer is coming back. Yeah, it's, I read that today. I'm surprised by that. I mean, yeah, I did see that. They've also announced some of the dining things that are coming, um, including... Sprinkles, which is a bakery, um, like a gelato place, a Joffrey's Teep stand, and also Edison, which is interesting. Edison is a venue in Los Angeles, which is sort of an industrial gothic bar and restaurant, hmm. sort of themed to, to a 1920s power plant. Um, it's apparently well-received in L.A., and they're opening up one in Disney Springs as well. I'm not sure if that's going to be at the town center, but I believe... I believe it is over in the town center of the landing area too. So they released some uh, concept art uh, mm-hmm. for the town center um, that I have only just looked at just mm-hmm. moments ago. Um, right. I, I, I'm I'm not sure I get it. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I know they, what they're going after here. I mean, it's like a solarium type thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, is it just going to be a spot where? People can walk around inside. They're trying to turn it into some indoor shopping. So, I mean, I guess it kind of looks like it kind of reminds me of one of the sort of new sort of waterfront. Uh, you know, it, it looked right. Mike doesn't look like an old marketplace or something like that turned into a mall. I th- yeah, kind of. I think of, of Faneuil Hall for anybody up in uh, up in New England who knows what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how they've t- in that, that area and some of the things that have changed. The concept art is also kind of strange in that it's very um, cartoony as opposed to some, many other kind of concept arts exactly. that you get. I yeah. mean, it almost looks like the uh, more recent Mickey Mouse shorts. It's got that kind of look to it, I thought. And, right. and the, the, <laughs> people, the people in them are all dressed in like 19, yeah, like you're century right. garb. It's you're right, odd. they are. That is weird. You're right. They it's are. an odd choice to go for. Because usually concept art, they try to get a little bit more realistic looking. Now, when I first saw the concept art, I, I said to you, it looks like a solarium because I thought that what we were looking at were, was windows on the sides, at least, were windows to the outside, but they're not. They're windows to stores. Yeah. So they are actually yeah, building an indoor mall here. Correct. I know I know part of the plan for this was going to be a lot more I mean, one of the problems with uh downtown Disney was especially over in the well, all over it. If it was badly raining, I mean you had to run from one store to the other. Oh yeah, it was this no is fun. gonna have yeah. more coverage. Not only do you have that um 
you know, what they you sort of that sky thing, that skyline thing that's going to cover part of your area to walk around in. There's also going to be some indoor sections to it so that you, you know, you can stay and shop in various stores and not actually have to go out in the Florida, you know, typical midsummer nasty thunderstorm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems like a good idea, um, you know. I, but it, but it's Mike. It seems more to more more and more to me to be turning this into a mall. You know, pretty at, much. I mean, maybe a nice mall. Yeah, but we're getting um, away from the Disney stores into a mall here, and uh, I, I I just don't you know. And you're not going to you know. Sure, there's a Tommy Bahama store, but unless it's a Tommy Bahama outlet. <laughs> Which it's not going to be. No, Tommy Bahama is very expensive. So you're talking mm-hmm. about not only a store, but you're talking about high end stores, uh, and that may appeal to people, but it doesn't appeal to me. Um, so it just, I don't know. It's still going to be geared more towards a local hangout, and the restaurants yeah. are different and unusual, at least. I mean, of the Bow House, yeah, Morimoto's, they're making cha- they're making Edison. changes there. Yeah, I agree. I agree. They're doing good things there. I just, I, I guess I gotta. This is a wait and see for me. I, I, you know, I'm glad they're making changes. I felt it really needed it. I've said that a million times, but um, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little curious how this is going to turn out in the end. That's all. I mean, it seems to me that the stores themselves are really geared towards more of the local crowd. Because definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I'm not going to Florida to buy Uggs. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. I, mean, I could do that here. Exactly. And anybody could do that anywhere. I mean, if you live in Kansas or California or you know, that's exactly right. Minnesota, you're going to be able to go to and find Uggs. I agree. Um, so, I agree. Whatever. Do we have anything else? <laughs> we we must have something else because we still yeah, have one, one thing, place Dave. to go. One more thing in the um, where is it the the wilderness? Excuse me, the Disney Wilderness Lodge has announced that they are opening up, or actually Disney has not announced it, but some some um, permits and plans have been found out that there are going to be 26 waterside villas, which, you know, similar to the Bora Bora bungalows at the Polynesian. Okay. Although these are, these are not actually going to be on the water. They're going to be more with basically a waterside view. Um, and basically... They Wait a minute! Whoa, 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 whoa! I don't, I don't understand the difference. They're not going to be on the water. You mean they're not going to be over the water like, a, like on pylons? But they're going to be correct waterfront. Water they're going to be on land. Okay. They're going to be, you know, water view right, right alongside the water, so you'll be able to, you know, get a nice view of Bay Lake, et cetera, et cetera. What, um, well. I suspect that they're not going to be as pricey as the Polynesian, but because right. they're not on the water, they don't have views of wishes. They don't have views of the Magic Kingdom. Um, and well, it's not the Polynesian. But. That, that's what I was just going to say. I mean, what are you getting a view of? You're getting a view of the backside of the, the Discovery con- Island, <laughs> or of the Contemporary, right? Or the Contemporary, correct? You know, the ugly correct. side of the Contemporary. I mean, I'm sure they'll do be well, very. I mean, I'm sure they'll be well received. I suppose there's going to be 26 of them, and you know, you have your own little cottage essentially in the woods yeah. of the Wilderness Lodge. Yeah. Um. But you know, yeah. I mean, the 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 way in which 
these bungalows at the Polynesian have been so universally applauded, um, mm-hmm. you know, you would think that they're going to do the same thing here. I, I, I don't universally applaud something that costs as much. We talked about that. Um, you know, I, I doesn't, it absolutely means nothing to me when Disney builds something that I have absolutely no chance to ever go in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and it seems like that's probably the same thing here. But the weird thing is the view. Uh, but there is a lot of waterfront there, and there and it could be put to good use. So it, it is it is an, a good a good idea for an expansion, and a good idea for an expansion without sort of interrupting the wilderness feel. So I, I you know without tearing down a lot of trees and putting up big buildings, which really mm-hmm. which really wouldn't do it. Um, you know, it would kill the whole the whole look. So I, I like this idea. I think this is good. This has got has some merit. I'm interested to see where exactly it is. I got to look and see if there's uh, you know, blueprints or something that you can see. There are, and they're basically on each side of the main building. So along the water. So there'll be like 13 or 14 to the left, and 13 or or so to the right. Um, basically, if you are staring at the pool of the of the main house you know you look to the left or look to the right along okay. the beach there there'll be like you know half a dozen or i should say a dozen of these waterside villas they're apparently going to be a 26 in total so i can't remember if that if those villas if that area is even accessible at this point like is it i can't remember from looking at it whether or not that's just wilderness there or if that's cleared space and beach or something like that i don't think so i think it's just trees right i mean it's just i believe so correct because the beach is off to the is right down below yeah i think it's wilderness there i don't think there's beach there yeah so they get development good good spot to develop that's it dave that is it okay we are going to take a short break but when we come back You're going to hear the second part of our talk with Josh Taylor from Modern Mouse Radio about the true life adventures. On our last show, we discussed the short films, and today we're going to be talking about the feature-length films produced in the same series. So we may kind of jump into this a little bit here. It might not be a smooth transition coming out of the break, (laughs) but uh, now you know what we're going to be doing. So uh, stay tuned for that. Jennifer Green of Destinations in Florida is the official travel partner of Radio Harambe and JumboEveryone.com. Jen can do everything you need done in order to book your next Walt Disney World vacation and have the time of your life. She is an expert in everything Disney and will remove all the stress of booking your trip. And she is as committed to conservation as we are. So every vacation you book or even every quote you request means Jen and Destinations in Florida will make a donation to the Jumbo Everyone conservation effort. You can contact Jen directly by emailing her at jenniferg at destinationsinflorida.com or by calling her directly at 443-424-0181. You can also head over to jumboeveryone.com and click the Destinations in Florida icon to get your vacation started. Seriously, what can be better than booking a Disney World vacation while helping to save wildlife? So, 
Let's move on to the features. Um, the first one was in 1953. It's called The Living Desert. Uh, I just wanted to kind of reiterate this story that Josh was alluding to before. Um, the film is a story about uh, animals and plants living in uh, sort of the harsh desert environments. I believe it's all in the southwest of the United States. Um, but it was a feature-length film in that it was about 70 minutes long. Um, and RKO, who was up until this point Disney's... Um, a prime distributor of all of its films refused to release it uh, kind of like they did with Seal Island but this time <laughs> uh, Walt decided he had had enough I mean it really created a rift with RKO that that led to Disney separating from RKO permanently and the founding of Buena Vista Films, which was their own distribution uh, outlet, which they still use to this day, which revolutionized the studio yeah. Um, Budget-wise and the whole thing. I mean, it, it, it. And this is. And we're not just talking for nature documentaries. This, this deal, this new Buena Vista Films immediately took over the distribution of every Disney film. I mean, RKO <laughs> really made a poor decision. Not only because the film grossed five million dollars at the box office on a budget of half a million. So it didn't do poorly by any means. So RKO would have had themselves a moneymaker. They probably should have learned by that point to trust Walt when he was willing to go to the mattresses over something like this. Um, but, it, you know, in the long run, it ended up being something um, that Disney benefited from in their own distribution. But let's talk about the film. And um, you guys, I think it was mentioned before a little bit in the anthropomorphizing of it uh, that this was sort of a a real change in in that, or at least a how do I put it uh, <laughs> that that this really brought that aspect in. Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah. Uh, when I watch this, uh, there's two scenes in particular that that stand out. The one that's really famous is two scorpions dancing to mariachi music. Um, I right. it was hoedown. Wasn't it like a hoedown? Or yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. It's a hoedown. Um, which, if you, you can YouTube it, and I mean, you'll get that one clip, which is fine. There's another clip uh, where they take some classical music and they're just focusing in on this like mud pit that's bubbling and um, and synchronize the bursting of these bubbles to the classical music. And this goes on through the whole song. Like, I thought it would be this great little funny 40-second clip, but it lasts, like, four or five minutes. Oh, my goodness. And (laughs) and in a 70-minute film, five minutes is a long time to not be focusing on animals, but just just little mud pits. Um, It's it's difficult to watch. The the Living Desert, I'll be honest, is difficult to watch. But, um, like you'd mentioned before... A lot of these films were cut up into little tiny yeah. pieces to yeah. be put into educational purposes. Yep. Um, those pieces make a lot more sense. They are a, a lot more beautiful than the entire film. Um, I think that this being their first full length effort, as far as going from 30 minutes to 60 plus minutes, they were trying to fill a lot of time with a lot of silly things. And there are some good stories in there, but there are also five minutes of mud bubbles bursting to classical music. Mike, you, you, you're you familiar with this one, correct? I saw this one, yeah. Yeah, it's... <laughs> it could be, as Josh was saying, I mean, it's, 
it could be boring at times. I yeah. mean, there's no other way to put it. I mean, it just it's could be very dry at times and silly at other times. Um, but now let me ask but, you. Let me ask you guys both this question though. Take yourselves out of your. Um, you know your knowledge of nature documentaries that exist today. Put yourself sure. back in 1953. Do you think it still would have felt boring, or or is it just that now the way movies are shot are a little different, and certainly we expect a little more out of the nature documentary than something like this? I mean, Mud Bubbles is not exciting, um, but I, two scorpions fighting may not be all that bad. Well, I mean, to me, boring is boring. However. <laughs> I will say this. I will say this about them. I mean, they were they were covering new ground here. I mean, they were trying to figure out how to really show a nature documentary. So I, I do cut them some slack in terms of. I mean, this is the first real feature length nature documentary, right? I mean, you know, it's not going to be perfect. I'm looking at this as uh, if I'm walking around town and I see at the local theater Walt Disney's name on something. I'm thinking, mm-hmm. oh, cool. Well, he just put out Peter Pan. He just put out Alice in Wonderland. Uh, Treasure Island had just, you know, been a, a, a recent introduction or was going to be a recent introduction. Um, those three movies, I mean, that's a really good trifecta. I mean, people may have not seen Treasure Island at this point, at least not the, the really old one, but they know about Treasure Island. Um, mm-hmm. They know about Alice in Wonderland. They know about Peter Pan. Um, Living Desert is just, if I see... If I saw all four of those posters up at a movie theater and I saw, oh, cool, I need to go see all of these Walt Disney pictures. I can trust Walt Disney and what he does. Um, between all four of those movies, I would kind of be a little bit bummed out to see The Living Desert, to be honest with you. Okay, that makes that makes sense. Uh, but it's only the beginning of these feature films. I think the next one, they start to hit a little bit of a stride here because there are a couple of really good ones. Um, This one I really did like. It was in 1954's The Vanishing Prairie. Um, Again, another U.S. film. Um, I would say we would call it sort of the story of what we would um, think of as, you know, the animals that have been lost or, or that were almost being lost because of the shrinking habitat in our own country. Um, buffalo, mm-hmm. bighorn sheep, prairie dogs. I think there might be mountain lions in there. Um, yep. mm-hmm. These are animals that once sort of thrived throughout the United States and were more now a little more rare and more difficult to see. And I think it kind of told sort of a, a neat kind of little poignant story about that, about how, you know, it isn't just... These far-off places where animals are being lost, great animals are being lost, there's also, you know, this also happens here and has happened here in our own backyard. Maybe I'm making more of it than it was, but uh, this is a, cinematography-wise, this is a gorgeous film, The Vanishing Prairie. It's gorgeous. Yeah, this, go ahead, Josh, you go. No, no, sorry. Uh, And and one point that I want to put in there is that um, going back to Walt's early years of of serving Mm -hmm. in World War I, Walt was a patriot. He loved America and everything about America. He'd grown up, you know, in middle America. He'd been on the prairie. Uh, This was something that was probably close to him. So I think that if Walt Disney was going to look at any of these and probably think, well, I know mostly about this subject and what the story that I probably would want to tell would be this film in particular. The Vanishing Prairie makes the most sense in the fact that Walt lived in this area he knew these animals uh or even had seen these animals you know uh, uh, up close and in person 
Um, it's interesting, and it's rarely do we, um, as Americans, I'm sorry if you're listening to this as a non-American, but as an American, we rarely tell stories of our own backyard. We love to, as far as nature, we love to tell stories about vast, far off places because that's what people like to see. We don't, we could see a buffalo, you know, like if you live anywhere in the U.S., you could see one. But um, to tell the story of how they are vanishing and the problems that we've created, I don't think is a story a lot of people knew at that time or are telling even now. Mm. Mike, you were going to say? Well, actually, you know, uh, Josh echoed, you know, something that I was going to say there, and that was this was, you know, Walt's backyard, essentially. I mean, he Sorry. grew up in Missouri. <laughs> it's okay. And that, uh, you know, this was, you know, really in his wheelhouse. And it is also one of the one of the best, I thought, at telling a story about conservation as opposed to some of the others. Um, so I, this is one of my favorites. The next one is I would say in 1955 it was probably the one that you could really find an inspirational thread from this film all the way to the Disney's Animal Kingdom. It was a film called The African Lion. Uh, we had mentioned the Malats, the couple who had shot seals in Ala- uh, the uh, Seal Island um, earlier. They spent three years yeah. <laughs> filming lions in Africa, ending up mm-hmm. with... I mean, an incredible amount of footage of all sorts of animals in Africa. I mean, they created um, and and introduced some of the best footage um, the world had ever seen of Africa's wild creatures up to that point. Um, it, how would I say this? Uh, it, it, it again, we we deal with the anthropomorphizing of of the animals, but the lions themselves, the way it was shot. Uh, the 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 story behind it, and certainly the footage of Africa was. I mean, it, this one to me, I, I like the Vanishing Prairie a lot, but this one to me is the one that I think still plays the best now. If I that would makes actually sense. agree with you. Yeah, no, yeah. and I um, again, we talked about this kind of being chopped up into smaller educational films. I know when I was a kid. Um, some of these clips were still being played on wonderful world of Disney or whatever it was on Sunday nights, you know, at that right, point. Right. And I can vividly remember, um, seeing bits and pieces of the African lion. And I think that, um, clips of this still get shown here and there, uh, from time to time. And I think, the most amazing thing, again, putting yourself in 1955, you've never traveled to Africa, never thought about visiting the Serengeti, didn't know how harsh that landscape can be, not only for humans, but for any of the wildlife that lives out there. Um, what an amazing story to show, because it's vastly different than what probably any audience had ever seen. Yeah, I mean, this was probably the first time for nearly everyone in that movie theater to see in color, in live action, Africa. Yeah, because we'd seen lions at zoos and yep. um, mm-hmm. you know baboons, birds, different characters, you know yeah. here there, elephants, etc. But to see them in their natural habitat, to see the sun rise on that landscape, mm-hmm. um, and to realize what these animals go through on a daily basis and. and 
what you can imagine life being like, um, you know, amongst that area is, is scary and beautiful at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was a, a real awakening for a lot of people who had never, you know, I mean, remember 1955, TVs were still in black and white. Yeah. Um, so any kind of news footage you may have seen from Africa or anything like that, I mean, it would just have been a few f- color photographs, maybe all of you, all you would have seen uh, in textbooks and things to that effect. Um, but this was the beginning, and, and, and I think kind of the beginning of really an infatuation uh, that Disney had with Africa that went on for, I mean, years and years. But, but Mike, um, I, I suppose you've seen this film. I have. This is, I think this is one of the ones that's a little less hokey than some of the other ones. I think yeah. it's a little less trying to go. It's certainly not like the living desert with a hoedown scorpions and all that kind of stuff. I mean, <laughs> they do, they do, um, do spend some time with, you know, lion cubs and trying to, you know, maybe anthropomorphize a little bit in terms of the family structure and all that kind of stuff. But it's a lot less like that than certainly the living desert was. Um, you know, I, I also this one did not win an Academy Award, if my memory serves. No, it didn't. Which boggles my mind in terms of, I mean, what what uh, what documentary did win that year? But anyway, um, well, that's you know, a this, great question. <laughs> this film kind of gets it's probably lost, just is a little bit lost in the shuffle, just because there are so many nowadays um, African line documentaries. I mean, you can't put on, um, you know, Animal Planet or something like that without you know, lion documentaries, just because they're so easy to film um, in the wild, at least certainly nowadays. Um, so it kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit, but it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful film, for, especially for its time. Yeah. And I, and, I, and I think this one is really, I'm sorry, David, this one's really sort of hitting the stride of being a, a full-blown nature documentary. I mean, this is where we're really starting to get into a precursor of what you see today. Yeah, I mean, it's the beginning of the circle of life, right? I mean... <laughs> It's the beginning You're of not that. Start singing, are you? David? No, but it's the beginning of that theme, right? It's the beginning yeah. of that theme that goes on and on, and you know, throughout Disney. I mean, it's 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 incredible. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, film. I mean, I, I, it is surprising that they didn't win the um, the Oscar, the best documentary that year, feature length film, something called The Unconquered. I don't know what that is? Sounds awful. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope it's not about something horrible. It's about Helen Keller. Oh, okay. Sounds so, horrible. Sounds, sounds depressing. Maybe I had the right note. Hopefully, uh, yeah, yeah, very, very up. Uh, in 1956, the next one was called Secrets of Life. This is another one of those, kind of like Nature's Half Acre, which is hard to sort of describe what this is really about. Um, they they call it. Uh, I think I believe the poster said something like "Nature's Most Intimate Secrets." How would you describe this, Josh? I mean, it's like you know things like pollination, and uh, I mean, how would you describe it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's about sex. Yeah, right. <laughs> it is. Yeah, but uh, I mean, like that's. Uh, I mean, in the most beautiful of terms, in the sense that um, we can't live in this world without plants. Plants. You can't be here without us. Uh, we're all married in some weird way, and all of these things have to happen in order for everything to stay alive. It's, it's, um, it may have been the most ambitious of all of these true life adventures, and may not have connected um, as well as maybe they wanted to. 
But I think that the idea here is, you know, we are all one big planet and life can't go on without certain things and, and certain um, characters in this world, whether they be plants or animals or humans or whatever. Uh, you know, and you're definitely seeing that now with like the vanishing of the bees um, and, and different mm-hmm. documentaries now. Right. Um, as things go extinct, what happens to us? Um, but this is kind of showing the more optimistic side of it in the sense of, well, these things aren't going extinct, but we're definitely showing you why we need bees, why we need plants, why we need ants, um, things that we don't necessarily think about from day to day, but they are very important to us as humans to continue to thrive and live in this world. Now, this was, Dave, I think one of the more bold choices for Disney documentary or nature documentaries, the true life adventures. I mean, this may be a weird comparison, but I almost compare it to sort of Fantasia. They really were thinking outside of the box here and going for broke. Um, you know, they weren't going with, you know, a lion or, you know, a bison, you know, trampling down the prairie or anything like that. They were going for something kind of obscure here. Um, and, you know, I just sort of compare it to, I don't know why, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but sort of the Fantasia of nature documentaries. I like that comparison. Now let's move on to 1957. And uh, before we began recording, we had a little bit of a debate on whether or not I needed to include a film called Perry. Needs to be included. Agreed. It, poor Perry. Uh, Josh feels it needs to be included. I feel it doesn't because it is specifically referred to as a true life fantasy rather than a true life adventure. But... Since Josh is running the show on this one and knows a lot more about it than I, and actually has seen it when I have not, um, did you see it yet? Or is this is this the one yeah, that yeah. You, okay? This is the one that you saw. All right. Uh, so, um, very briefly, because we are starting to run a little short on time, um, tell us why it's not a true life adventure. Okay, this is not a true life adventure. Um, Disney actually built this as a fabulous first. Uh, true life fantasy the first and only true life fantasy um, because of this uh, it actually when you talk about uh, Winston Hibbler and uh, some of the other people that were part of the documentary team here um, they decided not to write a script based on the footage that they saw but in fact adapted the footage to a book um, Felix Selton's book of the same name Perry about a squirrel who learns really about uh, what it's like to live in the forest. He finds uh, a love interest, and they kind of tell this silly romance story uh, about a squirrel. And this may be the reason, if you're bored with me saying this, why there's only one of them. <laughs> um, well, they, they at least they recognized in this one that they had been taking this humanization of animals a little bit too far and, uh, and uh, needed to separate it from the documents, the documentaries. You know, what's interesting, though, is um, going back, looking at all of these films, um, what... What I always look at, what I like to look at anyway, is the box office, the critical reception, etc. This right. film actually was praised by critics yep. when it first came out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something that was different, something unique. And sure. it was, a, again, if you, if you mute the audio, you're watching a nature documentary. <laughs> right. Um, but if you try and follow the story, they cut and edited this to become a romantic comedy about squirrels. Um, <laughs> as weird as that sounds, I think there's a 
uh, I think a DreamWorks movie about that. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is something to be said about it. And uh, it brings us on to the true life adventure well, Dave, before you move on to, go ahead. to the move off the Perry, the, we, we mean, really have to talk more about Perry. Okay. Well, no, not no. Really go so ahead, go Perry, ahead. But the, I mean, <laughs> let's be honest. The D- Disney nature films that you have today are very, very like, much in this regard. Ver- yeah, very much like Perry. They tell like a fake story. Yep. Um, using you know nature documentary film. Not footage. all of them, but not all of them, but a few of them do. But not the, all of them. Yeah. But like yeah. the chimpanzee one. Absolutely, did and, that was yeah, the one that I mean, comes to mind. Yep. The yeah. much more recent ones do uh, oceans and Earth. Uh, Fair and enough. I think, yep. I think, yeah, the winged uh, crimson yep. wings definitely don't. Right. Right. Fair enough. That's true. Um, I have not seen Monkey Kingdom yet, but my understanding either. is it's very it's it's in that vein of chimpanzee. Right. Okay. So let's move on to 1957's actual true life adventure. It was called White Wilderness. It was a feature film uh, where, once again, dozens of filmmakers were hired and spent years shooting footage of animals in the Arctic. Now, imagine how wonderful an assignment that is, uh, including, kind of sort of, but go ahead. <laughs> including polar bears, reindeer, beluga whales, all sorts of things, kind of, you know, in the northern areas. Um, but uh, it's difficult to talk about this film without talking about its legacy. But before we do talk about its legacy, Josh, is there any kind of comment, or guys, is there any kind of comment you want to make on the film itself before we get into the controversy around it? I don't want to just leave it at what it is. I mean, I've only seen bits and pieces of it. Um, it is a, you know, it, it, it's it's unremarkable in, in its work. Um, I think after the African Lion is when I saw it. I kind of you know, saw it in order there. Um, I didn't think it was up to that standard, um, but kind of some cool footage. African Lion. Uh, I mean, we all, uh, Mike, Dave, uh, even me, like we praise it. I think that it's the pinnacle of what they tried to do with the True Life Adventures. Right. Um, they got the original team of cinematographers uh, three years in Africa. It was amazing. What they tried to do with White Wilderness, um, what we talked about before going into this, uh, is whether or not we should ruin this, basically tell the tale of this film and how it kind of ruined True Life Adventures. Okay. The the good part of this um, is that it does show the Arctic. Again, a region that many of us will probably never travel to. Correct. Mm -hmm. We'll never see polar bears in their natural habitat. Um, we'll never see all of these beautiful creatures uh, in their natural habitat, you know, outside of documentaries. Um, however, it becomes a problem, and this is something that at the time, 1958, um, there weren't any nature conservation people uh, talking about this because it, it never happened before. And the fact that a spectator genre which is the nature documentary became an active participant in the nature documentary that being said they weren't on film but they moved animals they um, they manipulated it manipulated yep. the situation okay so what josh is referring to is the film uh, and it, probably the most famous scene of the film, even before people knew about the manipulation, was um, had to do with a little rodent called a lemming. Um, 
and this sort of mass migration of lemmings that ends with them all, you know, falling off a cliff or throwing themselves off a cliff uh-huh. into the Arctic Ocean and dying of exhaustion. Um, I guess the story they were trying to say is that they were, um, you know, that this was some sort of. Sh- <laughs> I'm not even sure what the point was from what they were trying to depict here well it was a, it was a sort of a myth that people thought that these lemmings would all follow you know you know their leader sort of wherever he went and in this right. case into the great blue ocean well because because um you know lemmings do follow in these great migrations which is weird for a rodent right the and and they do come along water and some of them do drown um but disney sort of wanted something more dramatic so it right. was actually found out much, much later. Now, the film we said was, what, 1958? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. By, this didn't come out until, I think, the 1980s. 1982. Okay. And it and was a show called The Fifth Estate. Which was a CBC show out of Canada, mm-hmm. um, which makes sense because that's kind of where this was all supposed to be filmed or where they said this was all filmed. It was supposed to be all filmed throughout Canada. Um, and what it appears they did is uh, I mean guys do you know a little bit more I don't want to get any of the facts wrong but they actually put them on like a put these lemmings on a rotating platform so that they would fall off it right and it was actually filmed right in Calgary um, in downtown Calgary or or near downtown Calgary it wasn't filmed they claimed it was in the Arctic Ocean but it It was was in a studio in Calgary. It wasn't actually in a studio. It was in a, in a, in yeah. a, at the Bow River, which is in down, is which is in okay. Calgary. Okay. What you're thinking of, Dave, is that... Is oh, that's the polar stuff? bear cub. Yes. Go, yeah, yeah, that was done in the studio. Yeah, which was another thing, but certainly not, not as awful as this one. No, right. Because basically they sent these animals to die, to drown. They killed them. They, they killed, killed them, them by drowning. For the, for the movie, right. For the film. For... To show a behavior that doesn't exist... Correct. The, no, even it, those those particular lemmings don't even migrate. No, there are lemmings that do migrate. There are lemmings that do follow. These in particular ones do not. Mm-hmm. And they they went on to show that lemmings do um, go into the ocean and they do uh, you know like Mike said possibly drown um, due to not being able to find land again. However, the manipulation here of mm-hmm. the incident, the changing of locations, the changing of characters the changing of um you know the platform instead of ice and showcasing it to an audience as if it was the arctic as if it was a glacier as if these creatures did this um that's the problem that i think a lot of people have with it and it oh well besides the incredible cruelty yeah and at the same time um you know showcasing like you said a, a polar bear falling over slipping around right. on ice um that was shot inside of a studio it's not only the fact that you're pulling the curtain over the eyes of the audience who's being manipulated here but you're manipulating a animal that can't even fight for itself right mm-hmm. yeah and you're not gonna you're not gonna do that to a full-size polar bear <laughs> no no uh, I, I mean they could have you know they, they might could try right <laughs> right um it's terrible and horrifying to think that um, that would never happen in this day and age. If you were if you were a documentary team and you tried to pull a stunt like this, 
Seven wow. million different conservation people would be all over you. Um, no oh, matter if it's yeah. no matter if it's endangered, whatever, it, you would be ruined in the Hollywood picture business at that point. Absolutely. Wait, you mean the lemming incident? Yes. Yeah. Yes, because I could tell you for a fact that the what they do, like for example, with the polar bears in the studio, that happens all the time, even today. They, oh yeah, they, no. They they do use zoo animals. They use yep. like animal park animals all the time to plug in plug in spots in nature documentaries. Though, so that kind of stuff happens all the time. But you're absolutely right about killing lemmings. That's for sure. Yeah, and it's important to note that. Um, and it also seems very plausible that uh, the, you know Walt is, was not here to defend himself in 1982. Um, this had not ever been mentioned uh, by anyone involved with the film before 1982. Um, mm-hmm. So we don't know whether or not Walt even knew this happened. Um, you know, in 1957, there's a lot going on in Walt Disney's life, and I'm not sure how much actual hands-on uh, um, involvement he would have in the making of this film. Uh, so it certainly seems plausible to me that somebody would just show him the footage. Walt would say, wow, that's incredible, mm-hmm. and put it out there. We don't know that. I'm not trying to absolve Walt of any of any um, you know wrongdoing here. I'm just saying <laughs> they... The the claim is that he doesn't have it. He did not have any knowledge of it, mm-hmm. um, but we don't know that for sure. Yeah, because, Mike, you know, like, like you said, he had died well before yeah. that documentary came out. But go ahead, Josh. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. No, no. no. Uh, my guess here is that even the guys that you know, uh, Ben Sharpstein, Winston Hibbler, I don't even think those guys knew. Right. right. Um, you're talking about uh, at that point a multi-million dollar company, one of the biggest in the world is looking for cinematographers to give them footage. Mm-hmm. Um, it would only be a matter of time, I would assume, before somebody, an outside source, would come and say, hey, we've got this great footage from somewhere beyond. Exactly. And it would be from a studio just outside of Los Angeles, and they'd be manipulating the situation to make it look as if it was the Arctic, you know, right. or, or something. So... I don't blame the Disney studio at all here completely. This was not, uh, you know, they never went through the footage and said, oh, is this real? Because it never been anything that they ever thought of. I mean, they'd either shot their own footage as the Walt Disney Company, or they went to these outside sources who, right. for the most part, uh, I would assume told the truth. Mm. And to a certain degree, you could even go back to all of the True Life Adventures and say, are, are all of these shot where they say they're shot? I mean... Um, uh, yeah, you're right, Josh, and, and 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 I understand your motivation behind that. But it's the same with an editor at a newspaper with a reporter who gives a false story. Um, you know, there is a responsibility in those who release these type of things to, ha- especially if you're releasing something that's called factual. If you're going to send dozens of people into the field, you do, you should be doing your due diligence to make sure that what you're releasing is what you say you're releasing, because it does ultimately become your responsibility. So true, true. that's true. So you, uh, I, I cannot absolve the studio of of issue in this. And to me, this is probably the ugliest incident in the entire history of the studio. For the most part, it was definitely a major one, and it became the downfall of uh, the nature documentary at the Disney Studios until the mid two thousands when Disney yep. Nature came out. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems weird, 
If they didn't know that this is happening, that this was the second to last film made. <laughs> yeah. Because there was a, a, a lull, a couple of year lull before they released the final one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was the end of the series. Uh, like I said before, just to just to clarify, this information about the Slimming incident did not come out until the 80s. But for some reason, after 1957, or after after 1957, there was only one more of these made, and then they put an end to it, um, which does kind of lead one to believe um, that, you know, perhaps, you know, perhaps they were fading. hadn't won an Academy Award in a while. Uh, you know, the last one to win, I believe, was the Af- was uh, the Vanishing Prairie. I'm not sure that Jungle Cat won one. I don't think it did. Um, so. You know, maybe there were other reasons. Maybe I'm, uh, you know, <laughs> adding a little circumstantial. Though. Yeah, maybe I'm being a little g- giving a little circumstantial evidence. In fact, actually, in fact, uh, White Wilderness won the Academy Award. It did. So to yep. so to end the series at you know one film after winning the Academy Award does seem a bit suspect. But neither here nor there. Um, let's talk about the Jungle Cat, and then we'll kind of button the whole thing up here. The final film was released in 1960. Um, as I've said about a thousand times, it's about a uh, spotted jaguar in the Amazonian jungle. Um, I'll be honest, I've never seen this one. So, does anybody have anything on this one for us? <laughs> um, I think I've seen the clips and, and things here. I, again, mm. I've pretty much stopped at Perry. I've, I've researched a few of these going forward. Stopped at White Wilderness. Uh, although I've seen um some jungle cat stuff it's amazing that it took as long as it did to get to the amazon um yeah i think that that i mean if you're gonna do nature documentaries that's one of the places where you gotta be well we gotta start there well Um, i mean just not to interrupt you josh but in fairness especially in 1960 that was going to be one tough place to film yeah i was just gonna say that that would have been crazy nature documentary it's almost impossible to find them yeah, yeah, it's true. It's yeah. a difficult proposition, especially back then. Yeah. Versus the prairie, where it's like, oh, look, a buffalo. Let's follow Ex- it. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Or even the African savanna. Oh, the savanna, right, right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've not, I don't know a whole lot about this film. Again, you can link it back to White Wilderness as to maybe why it's the last of these. Um, uh, at the same time, you can kind of say that they'd maybe run the course. Uh, if you look at. The long-term box office of these, they definitely slowly, you know, were gaining less and less ground. And maybe that's because okay. they were releasing so many of them um, all right. the time. You're kind of seeing the same thing with Disney Nature. Uh, when Earth came out, man, it made a bunch of bucks. Right. A lot of great critical praise as each year comes out and they they release a different nature documentary. Um, they become a little more exhausted. And mm-hmm. people tend to see them a little bit less. Uh, I think that might have also been a reason why it ended here. I, I, um, I also think, Josh, that by, by the time you got to White Wilderness and Jungle Cat, you know, we were talked before about the same people editing, narrating, directing all of these films. There's a very, there's a very palpable sameness to all these films. Mm-hmm. Um, in the way they're shot, the the way they're edited, the the pace of them is very similar. Um, it, there's only so much more they would have done. It surprises me that they didn't then try to to you know branch out a bit and maybe bring in different directors and different editors and stuff. But like you're saying, maybe the box office um, you know kind of prohibited that to a certain degree um i'm surprised they didn't become go back into making them sort of shorts for the television show 
Um, but who knows the circumstances at the time? Uh, but there is, I think, one of the downfalls of the of the whole series is this sort of sameness. You know, the 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 way. I mean, if you were to watch these all in order, <laughs> like you, have, I, I have, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 you, you you would really know what I mean by this sort of similarity between all of these. You know, there's a there's a, a tiredness, the fatigue that must have come out eventually. <laughs> Um, I will tell you, uh, after watching a lot of these, uh, I, I am surprised that they are definitely, like, when I see one, I'm like, oh, this could pique my interest. Um, more often than not, to watch an hour and a half of these, it, it does get exhausting. And um, yeah, to I think that a lot of these clips in the long run are better suited for educational films, right. for television um, and I think that's why, uh, in the long run, channels like Animal Planet, Discovery, etc., that do a lot of these nature um, shorts, you know, thirty-minute shorts, whatever, do very well comparatively to the full-length documentaries. Um, right. There are a few that tend to stand out, like March of the Penguins. Everybody loves that film. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. But in the long run, I'd much rather watch a thirty-minute short you know by jack Hanna on television than i would a full-length documentary narrated by somebody in a sound booth and and let's so let's we've this has been a very long show so let's bring it to a close here and button these sure. things up um sort of your final thoughts um from from each of you guys uh, also um josh i would like you to uh recommend the feature whichever feature i mean do you have another one you'd recommend besides the african lion that you would tell people they probably really should see um, the Vanishing Prairie, maybe? Vanishing Prairie is definitely one I would recommend to people. I think mm-hmm. that it's, uh, like I said before, it's something that you don't see. You know, right. uh, we don't see a lot about our own backyard. Right. So it is interesting, and it's uh, the conservation message is there. So if you're into that type of thing, you're, you're into that tear-jerking conservation message, out of all of them, that's definitely the one that that brings it the most. So, Mike, your your sort of thoughts on 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 these before we call it a show. Um, you know, they are a sign of the times. I think. I mean, they are kind of dated. Um, you know, and as Josh was saying, there's sometimes you know after about an hour and or so, you're starting to get they're tough to sit through for at some point in time. But as I said before, they were inventing a genre, so you know you, you give them some slack on it, and they, you know, all the exactly. channels, Good all the point. channels that you see now that uh, show all this kind of stuff that uh, you know they have to pay homage to Walton and this kind of stuff. And I and I would also point out that you know we have come a long way from the Lemming incident um, at in the White Wilderness, but we haven't come that far. Um, no. I, Dave, I think we've talked uh, on another show at one point in time um, about this, the state of uh, the nature documentary and how they're almost going back to or towards some of this stuff. Like, for example, uh, River Monsters, um, which yeah. is a show on, I think, Animal Planet, <laughs> yep. which um, shows this guy catching like giant and they call them monsters and they're just fish, but they're big. And he's, you know, puts them through the stress of catching them and then throwing them back into the into the water. I mean, there's all sorts of different nature documentaries nowadays that almost villainize some animals, you know, 
the ultimate predator um you know shark all this week kind of stuff. shark week is a good example probably the they, worst example of that yeah probably the worst example you're absolutely right and and uh, granted you know in shark week they probably don't purposely kill any animals but uh, like they did in white wilderness but we're not too far from um some of the stuff that's that they did and certainly humanizing them has become more in vogue nowadays disney does it yeah. and they don't do it to a negative yeah. degree but some of these shows on on animal planet and and all that kind of stuff do do it to a negative degree and you know put a bad picture on animals that um really shouldn't be there but you know that's my final thoughts great point you josh um i would go with with mike there i think that we've regressed to this one but it's changed i i mm-hmm. mean we want to be shocked. We want to be wowed. Um, we like shows that have kind of an eminent excitement, an eminent threat there. Um, you know, when you talk about Shark Week, yeah, it's definitely uh, ruining what we may or should be thinking about sharks. Obviously, they're not, you know, Jaws <laughs> right. everywhere. but um, Or get sucked bring- up in tornadoes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That doesn't happen. <laughs> but but for Discovery Channel, it brings huge ratings. It brings them advertising. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the day, you got to look at a lot of these Hollywood pictures and think, yeah, uh, they're looking at advertisers. They're looking at the bottom dollar at the end of the day. Uh, and that's true for Disney to some degree. Uh, they do have the conservation thing with Disney Nature and putting a lot of that money and effort towards conservation, which is great. And I commend them for that. And out of all the Disney uh, or out of all the documentaries that are out there, I think Disney cinematography wise has some of the most beautiful shots. Uh, uh, you can't compete with some of the shots that they've got. Right. Um, but if you really want to go out there and, and look at some of the great nature documentaries that are out there, I would say go look for more of these independent films, these more low-budget things. Right. Um, I know that, Mike, you got to go see uh, uh, the Joe Rody film right. um, recently. Going to film festivals like that and making yourself aware of of some of these things, because they are out there. There are people that do want to do this for a living that aren't trying to appeal to advertisers and to big corporations. Right. So I suggest going out there and finding these kinds of things and – um, Walt Disney invented this entire thing uh, uh, about animal documentaries. Sure enough, he he had a soft spot for animals. It goes back to Animal Kingdom and um, and the conservation message, and and hopefully uh, the camels being added. All of these all of these great things being added recently. Because um, for a few years, I thought they were definitely getting away from the conservation message, and I'm glad to see that um they're getting back to doing more animal things to showcasing animals we don't necessarily see every day in our lives um i think that we can credit that to walt disney his love of animals and the sparking for all nature documentary filmmaking whether it's television or right uh film or you know anything i mean i grew up watching nature documentaries because they were on TV and because of that, I know a little bit more than maybe I should have. I know, um, what's the magazine, the kids magazine that's, that's out there. Um, oh my gosh. 
I can't remember. There's a National was, Geographic kids magazine. There's a, no, there was a different one. There was just aimed towards children. Um, but that came out when I, I think in the nineties or so when you're talking about like Ranger Rick. No, no? okay. But there, but, but like you're getting to, there are several versions for right. children. Right. Um, to get children excited about nature, about going on hikes to see animals. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that's an amazing tool that not only, um, you know, we had from the true life adventures, but that we have still with animal kingdom. Yeah. To get kids excited is the biggest the biggest joy for that. Yeah, and I think these films uh, and yeah, all documentaries. There, I mean, there's a nature documentaries. There's a balancing act. I mean, I suppose if you really wanted to be true to life, you would just follow a, a, a lion for 24 hours, and right. 20 hours of your show is going to be them sleeping. I mean, that's really what you know they're doing. Sure. And then, but on the other hand, by creating some sense of anthropomorphizing them and you're being able to relate to them a little bit more than you ordinarily would. And I think Walt, when he started this series, to some degree, was trying to create a connection between people and animals so that you did care more about the animals. Um, and, I, and I think that's what they're going for. And sometimes they went too far. And even, yeah. you know, in the the current Disney nature films, I think sometimes they go a little too far right. and make it too human. But uh, I understand what they're trying to do, especially here, like I said, it, at the beginning of this you know they're inventing a genre here so they're they're sort of testing it so it is a balancing act and and i would say um and kind of my final thoughts is is um it's an incredible series it's a huge legacy it's part of what disney uh, kind of left behind for all of us and i think most importantly is what mike spoke to there uh, which is this idea of kind of breaking out of what you know and 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 adventure you know and learning a little bit and that's that's the spirit of disney's animal kingdom right um and being able to relate to these creatures who may all be gone or some some of whom may go extinct in our lifetimes i mean it's very uh, you know this is the beginning of a trend of bringing humans closer to wildlife that continues at the animal kingdom having said all that it's hard uh, not to think that the legacy of the true life adventures themselves isn't forever marred by the lemming uh, controversy that we talked about. Um, and But I think even though I accept that as being the case, that the lemming incident should be what one of the things that we remember true life adventures by, I think it also points to the incredible responsibility that people have with animals and in some kind of way points to our responsibility to the planet and to these creatures um, and what we really should be doing and the mistakes that can be made. And those are another one. Of, that's another one of the sort of uh, things that Disney's animal kingdom tries to talk about. Um, having said all that, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, thank you once again for tuning into Radio Harambe. As I always say, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Leave us a fun review if you like to do that. Um, uh, don't forget to check out our website, johnboeveryone.com. And uh, Josh, before we go, plugs. Ooh, uh, modernmouseradio.com is where you can find me. Pretty much everything I do. We've got a bunch of people writing, uh, making videos. And, of course, we've got our podcast, which you can check out there or subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Modern Mouse Radio. Uh, we do news, but then we also do all kinds of fun subjects, and we're all over the place. We just try and make you laugh and have a good time. So, 
This was a very long show. I hope you enjoyed it. I actually thought it was fascinating myself. I thought I am so sorry. No, no, this was this this was gonna be a long show because this is a huge subject and an important one. And if we're going to talk about the prehistory of the animal kingdom, this is probably the most important piece of that history. Um, feel free to follow us all on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Radio Harambe. Mike's at, at Jumbo Everyone. Uh, we're also on all the other social media. Uh, find all those links at JumboEveryone.com. So. For Josh, for Safari Mike, I'm Dave McBride, Quaharini, go well, and thank you for listening to Radio Harambe. Uh-huh.